because creativity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you want to find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey, and you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because, hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. Dr. Hart, great to have you back on one of my podcasts. Wonderful to be here with you, Eric. This is uh, such an interesting year, 2020, uh, such an interesting time where a lot of people are spending uh, a lot of time introspection. There's, there's a lot of depression, anxiety, a lot of underlying issues with people's mental health, and, and so many things are relevant to, to what you do and your experience just seems to be bringing more and more value by the day to, to the world's population. So it's, it's great to, to have you. And for people who may not be familiar, I have another co- podcast called The Future of Fitness, and you can listen to an extensive conversation that uh, Dr. Hart and I had there as well. So uh, let's, let's get people just really quick acquainted with who, who you are and what you do, Dr. Hart. How would you like to do that? Well, give us your backstory. How did, uh, how did you, I guess, the origin story of the BioCybernon Institute? Well, you know, one, uh, Greg Stewart, who uh, was a European, a very successful businessman, came and did the uh, Diamond Dozen program at BioCybernon in the, probably about 2005 he started. That's where someone prepays for 12 trainings and gets a 20% discount. And so he did a bunch of alpha and theta trainings. And he gave me a book uh, called Primal Branding that listed seven characteristics of any technology or process that ever went global. And he said, Jim, BioCybernaut has all seven of these, including one of those is a cool founder story. So you're asking about the cool founder story. So, <laughs> yeah. That's okay, a great book, here it by is. The way. Here it is. Um, Jim Hart was a, a geek, a nerd, a math whiz, and a physics major at Carnegie Institute of uh, Technology. And in the fall semester of his senior year, he came out of the student union uh, to f- find a big hand painted sign where every letter was a slightly different color that announced that Dr. Joe Camilla would talk on brainwaves and consciousness, and it gave a time that was just 10 minutes hence, and uh, a location that was Margaret Morrison College, which was right across the tennis courts from the uh, student union. So I went, I didn't have a class, so I went. It was fascinating. And uh, I had a very close friend who was a grad student at Duquesne University studying phenomenology and uh, psychology. And uh, some French Jesuits were in uh, teaching phenomenology. And I was reading the phenomena of man with him, uh, uh, you know, by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And the philosophy was so cool. I was really digging it. But there didn't seem to be any way to measure or to make a science out of all of this really groovy philosophy. And so here Joe Camilla is talking about brainwaves and how there are different brainwaves for different states of consciousness. And so it lit my fire. And I spent uh, the rest of the school year, every spare minute in the library reading uh, uh, scientific articles on brainwaves. And so in the spring, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree in physics, I hopped on my Triumph motorcycle 
rode up into Canada across the Trans-Canadian Highway and down I-5 to San Francisco and uh, showed up at Joe's lab and volunteered as a research subject. Well, uh, it was pretty primitive. He, w- he was located in a dilapidated house at the edge of campus, although he had, from a federal grant, a large uh, PDP-15 mini-computer by Digital Equipment Corp., and it ran the brainwave training. It was in a bedroom of the house. The feedback chamber was a closet off the bedroom that had some sound tile on the wall ceiling door. Um, There was a little table with a three-digit Nixie tube uh, score-giving device. And in the corner, on an orange crate upended, was a torn 12-inch speaker. And being, you know, a torn speaker, when the volume gets loud, it fuzzes out. Now, an audiophile would have freaked out about that, but as my alpha got bigger and the speaker fuzzed out, I just went into it. It was just, it was information. And I merged into that auditory fuzz. Well, it was the coolest thing I'd ever done. And uh, I wanted more. I went back the next day and had another hour. I went back the next day and had another hour. I went back the fourth day wanting more of this super cool groovy stuff. And I'll tell you in a minute. Uh, what that was like, Uh, but they weren't doing any studies. Uh, And I was so disappointed, but I had met Joe's San Francisco girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, who worked in the lab. I went to her office and asked if she would uh, take me downstairs, put a few electrodes on me and pop me in the closet so I could play. She was happy to do this. Then she went upstairs, got involved in her work and forgot I was there. (laughs) Um, Then lunchtime came, and with nine other members of the lab, they piled into Paul Gorman's VW camper van and went off across town to a 12-course Chinese lunch. In course 11, she awakened to the memory of, oh, my God, there's somebody in the chamber. (laughs) And they all rushed back, uh, you know, to the camper van, hurtled across town, ran up to the building, uh, ripped open the door of the chamber, and interrupted the late stages of a most incredible adventure, without which I'd be in a physics lab somewhere studying subatomic particles, which had been my plan. And so uh, in the feedback chamber, uh, as the uh, alpha tone would get louder, my rational mind would leap at it and would go, what was that? How can I keep it going? What caused it? And of course, this mentation would cause the alpha to go away. It was very frustrating because I would do it and then my compulsively rational analyzer would jump at it and it would go away. So I eventually, over minutes and, you know, hours, learned how to put a leash on that aspect of my mind and the alpha tone would occur and my rational mind would want to leap at it and analyze it, but I would restrain the sucker. And so... What this led to was longer bursts of tone, higher scores, and pretty soon I was cruising the universe out of body. Uh, I was having ego disintegration. Uh, I was meeting up with discorporate entities. I mean, it was quite a lot for a Protestant fundamentalist physics major, which is what I had been when I went into the chamber. And so I was so high that for the next three days, uh, I walked around and my feet didn't really touch the ground. But then the summer was over, and I had to uh, get back on my motorcycle. I rode back across the country uh, on Interstate 80 to Pittsburgh to register for grad school in psychology because I figured um, I was probably going to be dealing with some weird stuff, and it would be best to get my rational mind certified with some kind of seal of approval, and I thought a PhD in psychology might be just the thing. And so that's how it all began. Now, I was up to this point just telling people about this cool thing that had happened to me. But when I was a senior, I'd set up an exchange program between professors at Duquesne University and Carnegie Institute of Technology, where they were mostly rat runners, behaviorists. The Carnegie uh, Tech psychologists referred to what they did at Duquesne as witchcraft because it was dealing with consciousness and they didn't believe in consciousness. So 
uh, I'd met one of the professors there and become friends. His name was Rolf von Eckersberg. He'd been a grad student under Timothy Leary at Harvard. And along with Timothy Leary, he had done tons of LSD. He'd lived at the community at Millbrook, and he was just radiantly aware. And he lived in a big uh, rented house, former robber baron house, up uh, above the campus. And so after registering uh, for grad school, I walked up the hill, walked into his house. He took one look at me and saw that I was profoundly different from at the start of the summer. And he motioned for me to sit down the other side of his desk. With one arm, he swept everything off his desk onto the floor, folded his hands and said, okay, tell me what's happened to you. Well, about three and a half hours later, when I finished the detailed description, which you can read in uh, Megabrain Report, 1984, or it's also on the BioCyberNet website, it's called A Tale of Self-Discovery, a detailed first-person account of what happened to me in Joe Camilla's chamber. Um, he listened, and then at the end, he smiled and he said, well, we can do that here. And at that point, everything changed for me, because up to that point, this was just some really cool experience that I want to tell people about. But when he said, we can do that here, I realized that I could do my doctoral dissertation research on this stuff. The psych department had one soundproof chamber. It had a pile of junky old electronic equipment that with my physics degree, I could cobble together into a functional brainwave feedback laboratory. And so that's how it began. Nice. So fast forward to where you are now. BioCyberNow, you got someone like Tony Robbins, you know, out there who you've transformed the way he goes about life and, you know, uh, huge audiences. You have powerful, you know, CEOs and entrepreneurs coming through. You have, you know, kind of everyday Joes and Janes coming through and, and you're changing their life. How are people, how are people different when before they walk in the door at BioCyberNot and then what happens when they're in there? And then how are they different when they're, when they walk away? Well, I've spent some decades in university research uh, to document, to answer exactly that question. Eric, that's an awesome question. How are people different? Well, first of all, there is one thing uh, common about people who come uh, because the gifts that they get are all across the board. Um, but there's one thing that's common about everybody who comes, which is they're interested in change and they have a desire to change. Now, sometimes people want to change toward greater uh, creativity, uh, greater innovation ability, better entrepreneurship, um, more happiness. But sometimes they're trying to get away from things like anxiety, sadness, depression, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, all of which we can help with. Um, And the question uh, can be, Uh, best answered by imagining a continuum that goes from left to right. At the left is dysfunctional and at the right is hyperfunctional. And so wherever people start on that continuum, maybe they're, you know, the right in the middle, normal. Uh, What they do is they go on to develop aspects of hyperfunction. If they start down further toward the left where they're in dysfunction mode, the first thing that happens is the dysfunctions fall away uh, and they can show up as normal. And then as they continue training, they can go on further to the right, which is the right direction, and become more hyper-functional. And so um, the, some of the things that I've documented are a 50% increase in creativity. That was with a uh, group of Stanford Research Institute scientists. And uh, we had a control group, which were Silicon Valley uh, programmers, engineers, uh, businessmen. Uh, And uh, the control group was brought into the lab and, you know, shown various physiological parameters, given feedback on muscle tension, heart rate, things like that. But they didn't get any alpha brainwave feedback, only the research scientists from SRI, Stanford Research Institute, did the training. 
and their average increase in creativity was 50%. Now, to give a little context, some of them had been working on problems for the last two years that they had been unable to solve, and they solved them quickly and easily in the biosavernode alpha chambers uh, because creativity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. <laughs> when in the mid-'80s, Colin Martindale undertook to study creativity and brainwaves. He took a group of creative people. Uh, they had patents and publications, paintings, sculptures, things like that. So they were creative across a wide range of uh, disciplines uh, and activities. And then he brought in a matched group of normals who did not have these indicia of creativity, no patents, no publications, no sculptures, no paintings. And he measured their brainwaves under two conditions. One was at rest, where he found no difference between the creatives and the normals. At rest, no difference. But when he gave them problems to work on, the normals sat there in their normal brainwave state and did only as well as normals usually do, whereas the creative people immediately turned on high levels of alpha activity within which they quickly and effectively solved the problems in a manner that distinguished them as creative people. And so Colin Martindale said, creativity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. Now, some people come by this ability to turn on alpha to problem solve naturally, but even those who don't can become super highly creative people at BioCybernaut by learning how to increase their alpha. And the process of creativity has been much studied. It's so valuable to human culture. And so it turns out there are actually two types of creativity. One happens in alpha waves, and that's rare. And the even rarer type of creativity happens in theta brainwaves. And that's exceptionally rare, but exceptionally valuable. So the alpha creativity has four steps. One is learn the field, learn the data of the field, pay your dues, find out what the good problems are. Then having found out what some of the good problems are, you brew, you incubate. This is facilitated by increased alpha. Then the third stage is the eureka stage, the illumination, the flash of insight. I found it. And uh, then the fourth stage is verification, where you go back to your lab or your bench or your desk and you make sure that the idea uh, is uh, worthy and it works in a variety of settings. And so it's called the eureka phase, uh, the third stage, the illumination phase. Uh, after Archimedes, a famous Greek philosopher-scientist who was charged by the king uh, with finding out if his new crown was pure gold. The king suspected that the goldsmith might have put base metals in the crown. You now, he didn't want to drill into the crown and destroy it because it was very pretty. So he asked Archimedes to find a way to see if the crown was pure gold without drilling into it. Well, as you know, in Greece, they had these public baths. And so there, Archimedes was getting naked into one of the public baths, and he observed as he got in how the water went up. Well, because he had been brewing on this for a long time, he realized he found the answer, and he shouted, Eureka, Eureka, and he went running <laughs> naked down the street, shouting Eureka. It was quite a local scene and, you know, has come to us down the, you know, centuries of history that, Eureka, that Archimedes went running down the street naked shouting Eureka, meaning I found it, I found it. And of course, what he found was he could take, he could weigh the crown, the king's crown, and uh, then take that amount of pure gold, known to be pure gold, and put it in water and see how much water was displaced. Then he could take the crown, which weighed the same, and put it in water. And if it displaced more water, then he knew that it had base metals in it and the goldsmith had been a crook. Mm. And so increasing creativity is one of the things that happens naturally when people do the biosavernode alpha training. Pause for question. Yeah. So great story. I actually didn't know where Eureka came from. So thank you for that. 
And I guess, you know, the question I, I'd be asking myself as a listener is, I mean, we mentioned alpha waves are definitely something you can measure, right? How do you guys standardize or do you even attempt to standardize the process of measuring creativity? Like how, how do you do that? Well, in the case of the Stanford Research Institute scientists, we used a very uh, simple and very widely accepted measure called the alternate uses test. Hmm. And uh, it starts, we have a little booklet uh, about, oh, half the size of a regular piece of paper. And uh, you open the booklet and on the first page, there's a word at the top of the page. And then you have a certain number of minutes, which are timed, to write down all the alternate uses you can think of for that uh, word. For example, let's say it says newspaper. Well, you can read it. You can become informed. Uh, You can use it to light a fire. Uh, You can roll it up and use it to swat a fly. Uh, you can use it to cover a hole in a broken window. I mean, creative people come up with longer lists. And uh, so that was, the, that was the test that we used. And uh, after the uh, alpha training, people come up with much longer lists. And so very simple, a very widely accepted test of creativity. But the fact that the SRI scientists solve problems in the chamber that they hadn't been able to solve for two years is another indicator of creativity. Oh yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think we, we can generally accept that creativity at a high level. You know, if, if there's people out there who have the capability and the influence to solve huge problems, right? That creativity is undoubtedly super valuable, but how about creativity in one's day-to-day life? How does being more creative help you get through the day, uh, an average day in, you know, a more fulfilling, happier way? Well, um, people perform routine tasks every day Mm -hmm. uh, related to cooking, cleaning, uh, doing their clothes, uh, caring for the children. Uh, And many times uh, these acts uh, are repetitive, and uh, you know you learned it from your parents. If you have creativity, all of a sudden you can make an innovation, and something that used to take you an hour, you can now finish in 20 minutes hmm. because you were creative. Now, creativity is just one of the many uh, skills that increases in the course of the alpha training. Another one is emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence is considered the master skill for success in life. It's more important than creativity or even IQ. IQ may account for 10, maximum 20% of your success in life. But a Dr. Travis Bradbury and Janine Greaves, who wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence 2.0, uh, point out that EQ or emotional intelligence accounts for 58% of your success in life, almost 60%. Wow. So it's uh, three or six times more important than IQ. And so you can be you're really, really smart, but if you can't get along with people, you can't have employees, you can't have meaningful relationships, you can't have investors, uh, and so you do have to be able to understand other people's emotions and relate to them based on some uh, confluence between your emotional state and their emotional state. And so how you go about your daily life, uh, I know in times of COVID and lockdown that you may not interact with as many people as you did before, which makes the people, the interactions you do have all the more important. And so if you have higher emotional intelligence, you can be more effective, you can uh, interact uh, better with other people so that they're more satisfied and you are more satisfied with the relationships. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I feel like emotional intelligence really just started to enter the conversation uh, on a broad level within the last few years. Or is that That's just right. me? Yeah, well, uh, I can go back... Um, 20 years 
to an article in Harvard Business Review by Daniel Goldman. Uh, and he was talking about emotional intelligence as it relates to business. Hmm. And in that 2000 article in Harvard Business Review, he was saying that uh, uh, research on entrepreneurs and uh, business owners and business managers had discovered there were six basic types of manager. And they ranged all the way from the dictatorial authoritarian who would say, I'm the boss and you have to do this because I say so and do it now, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where it's totally a consensus building and, you know, let's do this together and everything in between. And what he found all the way back in 2000 was that the most successful managers and uh, entrepreneurs were those who could apply every single one of these six basic different management styles when it was situationally appropriate. Hmm. And so maybe with this person on this day, you need to be, you know, uh, shall we say forceful and demanding. And later that afternoon with a different group of people, you need to be conciliatory and consensus building. And so, uh, Daniel Goldman pointed out there in 2000 that in order to manage uh, this, uh, this ability to use appropriately uh, one or more of the six basic leadership styles, you needed to have high emotional intelligence. Because with high emotional intelligence, you could know which of the business management styles was called for in this moment, and then you would have the ability to bring that forth and to express that. Oh, that's fascinating. What what happens when people get that wrong? Like if if you're uh, you know walk into you know a meeting of of you know let's say employees or staff, and uh, you know you don't have the emotional intelligence kind of decipher what the situation needs at that time. Let's say you bring in you know um, a softer attitude, something that's more consensus building. But really, what these people needed was kind of a kick in the butt. What what do you what, what, how does that affect the long-term or the short-term and long-term of that organization? Uh, well, let's make it simple and talk yeah. about dog behavior. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are dog whispers who go into families' homes and, uh, you know, to try to quell problems caused by the family dog, mm. uh, which might be like totally out of control, uh, ripping up the couch, chewing people's shoes, uh, defecating on the carpet and just generally being a bad dog. And typically what they find is that nobody in the house is managing the dog and the dog, which only thrives in a situ situation where it's told what to do, uh, goes nuts. And so what's needed in a situation like that is somebody to like train the dog, sit, roll over, don't bark, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, if you don't bring the proper management style to a situation, you're not going to have a very effective team and the company may not even survive. So who at the BioCyberNot Institute, you guys have how many locations right now? Today's uh, just for well, people active know, today's locations. October. We have Sedona, Arizona, which is our world headquarters. Yep. We also have a training center in southern uh, Bavaria, right near the Swiss border. And uh, our Canadian center is in the process of relocating. Uh, we've moved uh, the technology uh, and uh, many of the supporting structures out of Victoria on Vancouver Island uh, to Bragg Creek near Calgary. Uh, we still have the training chambers there. Uh, we're looking at, you know, uh, how to move them. Uh, they're uh, Faraday cages, uh, the largest one. Each of the two floor plates uh, weighs 800 pounds. It takes six guys uh, to move each one of the two floor plates. So we're in the process of moving them. And at some point, we'll have our Canadian uh, operation going again in Bray Creek, Alberta, Canada. So two active and one in transition. Gotcha. And who, who do you see? I mean, we mentioned people like Tony Robbins, and uh, there's a lot of big names and people go to the BioCybernaut 
website and you can, you can see some of the big names that have come through, but who, who do you see most often? Is there a particular, like maybe a couple different avatars that you tend to see coming through the Institute for training, or is it just a, a huge spectrum of people? Well, it is a huge spectrum. And like I said, the only thing common to all these people is an interest in change and a desire for change. Uh, but it ranges from CEOs of billion-dollar companies to uh, shaman. We've had over 200 Canadian aboriginals, including chiefs and medicine men and women, uh, shaman. Uh, we've had scientists and engineers and programmers uh, and professional athletes. Uh, when I was in the San Francisco Bay Area, I trained a number of San Francisco 49ers. And so you know a little bit about their Super Bowl uh, prowess. And so uh, I remember in uh, California in 2007, I trained a German businessman who, uh, whose company uh, was in Thailand. And at the time, he had eight small companies. Now, after three alpha trainings, two theta trainings, and one delta training, he has 52 large companies and a publicly listed net worth of $1.2 billion. And so people evolve as they go through the biocybernet training. I mean, if you're going to come out with... Uh, 11.7 points higher IQ, 50% more creativity, emotional intelligence gains that are almost off the chart, uh, and you have motivation and joy and happiness, you're going to get out there in the world and you're going to shake things up and make things happen. You're going to do things that are going to improve the lot of humanity as well as improve the situation for yourself and your family. It's just inevitable. Uh, Travis Bradbury and Janine Greaves in their book point out that every one point increase in emotional intelligence nets a global citizen an average of $1,300 more income per year. Now, that's an average based on salaries in India and Pakistan and the Maldives and Bangladesh, as well as Germany, England, France, you know, Scotland, Canada, and the U.S., and so if you are in a first world country, it's likely that you'll have opportunities that will have your one point increase in EQ amount to considerably more than $1,300. But even if you just take that global income figure and you multiply it by the 15.8 points that people on average attain in the alpha one training, that's well above $20,000 and is greater than the cost of the Alpha One training. And so, you know, you pretty well start out uh, ahead of the game and go on from there. Yeah, I love it. So, Dr. Hara, I do, I want to talk to you about kind of, I guess, the last five years, just this is one man's noticings, but I guess the exploration of consciousness has become start starting to get more into dinner table conversations, right? I mean, maybe it's the research that's now being done on, you know, psychedelics and how those could be applicable to a lot of ailments in human society to the work you're doing at BioCyberNot. I feel like there's a, a kind of a reinvigorated focus on consciousness. Are you seeing that as well? Because I mean, you're in the middle. of. Oh, absolutely. And let's, let's uh, give this a context. Okay. At, at BioCyberNot, we say brainwaves rule. Hmm. brainwaves rule they rule your life they rule your perceptions they rule your thoughts you cannot have the perception of the color blue without the brainwaves that convey blue uh, any thought you have any mood any feeling you have only when you have the appropriate underlying pattern of brainwaves and when you change your brainwaves with any method which could be sex meditation drugs sufi dancing drumming or biocybernaut brainwave training, when you change your brainwaves in any way, you will change your experiences. And the thing at biocybernaut, it's not a drug doing it to you. You're learning to reach inside the levers and wheels and knobs and buttons of your brain and turn them on your own so you become an autonomous being able to attain the states of awareness that you want. You don't depend on having to take a drug or, you know, things like that. And so 
uh, I, you know, there, there's lots of wonderful things that are happening with people using plant medicines like ayahuasca and uh, ibogaine and things like that. Uh, and when you make the brain, and they are effective only because they change the brainwaves. And so if you don't want to take drugs or you want a lasting effect because you've learned how to change the brainwaves yourself from inside your own brain, then you would go to biocybernaut. Now, all the way back in 1983, Peter Russell, uh, the author of a book called The Global Brain, made a presentation in Toronto at the Psychosynthesis Conference called The Global Brain. And we show that video of his uh, presentation in every training on day five. And in it, he talks about the four great waves of human cultural revolution, uh, the last of which is where we're right now, he calls it the consciousness processing revolution by analogy with the information processing revolution that preceded it and the industrial revolution that preceded that and the agricultural revolution that was the first of the great human cultural revolutions. Hunter-gatherer societies were how humans first came together in groups and formed culture. But it was a very difficult lifestyle. You had to chase the herds. Or if it's a cold January morning and you and your family are hungry, you have to get into your furs and grab your spears and go out and kill something so your family can eat. Hopefully a pack of wolves won't find you before you get back to your wherever you're sheltering. And so when agriculture came along, people found it way, way more uh, enticing and attractive than hunter-gatherer. Now, Farming is hard work, especially without tractors. Uh, but on that same cold January morning, when you're hungry, you go down to the granary and you get a cup of oats and you come back and you make oatmeal and the family eats. And you don't have to you know, go out in the snow and find something to kill. And so uh, agriculture quickly became the dominant use of human time and remained so until about the year 1900, when in the advanced countries in the West, the Industrial Revolution took over. Now, the sweatshops of the early factories uh, were, you know, hard, but at least you didn't get rained on. You, you could work indoors. Uh, right. it, it, when it snowed or hailed, uh, you know, you could stay dry. And so uh, villages grew up around the factories and towns and cities, and so people mobbed out of the farms and into the factories. And that continued as the dominant use of human time up until about 1975, when the information processing revolution took over. And soon the Miracle Mile near Boston and Silicon Valley in California had a lot of the workers that used to be in industry. Soon the steel mills along the southern shores of the Great Lake were being called the Rust Belt because nobody was working there anymore. People had gone off to work in high tech. And Peter Russell identified a fourth wave, which by analogy with the information processing revolution, he calls the consciousness processing revolution. People who are involved mm -hmm. in the development of the mind and the development of consciousness as we are at BioCybernaut. And so this is the fourth wave and it's become widely enough known that up on Sand Hill Road above Stanford in uh, California, uh, the venture capital uh, uh, networks up there are abuzz with the idea of the fourth wave of human cultural revolution and how can they make money on it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I can certainly feel it. I mean, maybe it's just the conversations I have with the people in my circles, but, it, you know, people who, you know, I would have looked at and said, there's no way that they do any kind of consciousness exploration, right? But they do. And they are, mm -hmm. and it's recent, you know, people in their fifties and sixties, even who are just now starting to think that, Hey, maybe this, this stuff, you know, these, uh, these magic mushrooms, maybe they're not for, for party people. Maybe they're for people like me. Maybe there's, there's, you know, uh, and obviously meditation is hugely popular, but I think it's a, a long, a long road to get to where you want to be. Uh, it's really well, unless time. you come to BioCybernaut because we haven't talked about this, but, uh, the Alpha One training program allows you to install the same brainwave changes as if you were doing Zen meditation for between 21 and 40 years. Technology speeds things up. We know from studies done in Japan by Japanese scientists like Kasumatsu and Harai that 
they went to Zen masters in the two main traditions of Zen, Soto and Rinzai, like Christianity has Protestant and Catholic. Zen has Soto and Rinzai. And they asked permission to measure brainwaves on the monks. Permission granted. Then they asked the Zen masters to rate the monks for level of spiritual development. And this they did. Then they measured brainwaves. Well, they found that the greater uh, the rating of spiritual development, the more alpha waves they had in their meditation record. And nobody was rated advanced who had less than 21 years, and some had 40 years hmm. of Zen meditation practice. So we know what the brainwaves of advanced Zen are, 21 to 40 years of Zen. And that exact pattern of brainwave changes ordinary non-meditators can achieve in one week at BioCybernaut with the Alpha One training. Technology speeds things up. Yeah, that's wild. So here's, here's a fun question for you, Dr. Harda. Let's say, I'm just going to put an arbitrary number, 20 years from now. Where do you think the work you're doing and the collective work in consciousness, where do you think it's going to head? How do you think our civilizations are going to be different? Well, Peter Russell, in his uh, book and video, The Global Brain, uh, foreshadows that. Um, he points out that you need five to 10 billion atoms collected together in the right way in order to have a living cell. You cannot make a living cell with a thousand atoms or a hundred thousand or even a hundred million atoms. You need five to 10 billion atoms to make a living cell. Okay, so now let's take brain cells. And when you put together five to 10 billion of them or more, like we have in a human brain, then you have enough complexity to have a self-reflective consciousness. Well, we have on the planet now close to 8 billion human brains. And when these can be connected together in a network, for which I would suggest the biocybernaut technology, which until we all become telepathic is probably the easiest way. And so out of this network of 8 to soon 10 billion human brains, there will arise a collective human superconsciousness. And so, uh, you know, our neurons receive inputs and they fire or they don't. Well, then the result of that firing in our brain means that we get to have higher order experiences like love and compassion and hunger and thirst and pleasure and pain and sweet and sour and hot and cold, our neurons don't have any of these experiences. These are higher order experiences that occur only to the collective consciousness that emerges out of the activity of our billions of neurons. And so in the same way, once we can link together the billions of human brains on the planet, there will emerge a higher order collective human superconsciousness which will be able to do things and have experiences that we can only understand by analogy. Wow. How far away do you think we are, Dr. Harv, for something like that? Well, uh, Cliff High, uh, who is, can be found on halfpasthuman.com, uh, has described uh, work being done in Antarctica by 1,500 academic um, uh, scientists anthropologists who are missing from their university departments studying the ET civilizations being found under the ice. And he says that there will be silver-based technologies that come out of that research. One will be a free energy device, highly dependent on silver, which he says will become much more expensive. Hmm. And a technology also based on silver, which will enable all of us humans to be telepathic. And so, um, you know, Cliff High is a, uh, a well-known uh, futurist, and his uh, Alta technique, uh, where he studies patterns of language on the internet in order to tap into the collective uh, wisdom, of the collective psychic abilities of humans en masse. Uh, and so it could happen very quickly. Uh, we also find 
that, and this goes all the way back to uh, the early 80s, when I began doing what we call shared feedback. After people had done the Alpha One training, so they knew how to control their own Alpha, we could put them in chambers in pairs, or I've done it with as many as eight people in one chamber, where they all hear each other's feedback and they see each other's scores as well as their own. And uh, people develop telepathic abilities doing this. In 1983, I trained two Army intelligence officers, Lieutenant Colonel John B. Alexander and Lieutenant Colonel James McLaughlin. And they did Alpha One in separate chambers, and then they did Alpha One Shared, where they spent a week in the same chamber. And John Alexander wrote a book called The Warrior's Edge, which has become a cult classic. You can find it used on Amazon sometimes. <laughs> and in, he dedicated a whole chapter to their time at BioCybernaut. And he confirmed, and now this is with the imprimatur of U.S. Army Intelligence, that they had secrets slip between them. In other words, telepathy when they were doing the BioCybernaut shared feedback training. I wanted to do shared feedback with them, but they wouldn't allow it because they had high security clearances and I had none. So uh, there's a way that we can do this like right away. Yeah, and there's, I mean, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with, at least from a, a high level of Elon Musk and Neuralink. How, how do you see technology like that playing in? Do you think, uh, do you think he's onto something there? Well, we are doing November 21 and 22, a global consciousness summit. Hmm. And uh, we recently trained a man who is neighbors with Elon Musk, both at home and at work. And I've suggested that he invite Elon to talk at our global consciousness summit. I don't know if that contact will uh, go through, but anyway, this is a general invitation to Elon Musk to speak at our Global Consciousness Summit. And so uh, I think it would be uh, amazing uh, to have his input into the dialogue about how is consciousness evolving and how can we best and most safely evolve it uh, for the benefit of everyone. That's awesome. So Elon, if you're listening to this podcast, get in touch with Dr. Hart. That's what, that's what we'll say. <laughs> I don't think he's listening, but hey, who knows, right? Right. Uh, so tell us about this this summit. I'm I'm curious to hear more. And uh, you you mentioned November 21st, 22nd. What, what's right. what's yes. the goal of the summit? Well, uh, to promote the idea that by becoming more conscious, uh, everything in the future will improve for individuals, for families, for communities, for companies, for countries, and so. Uh, among the people who are going to be presenting include uh, uh, Tony Robbins. Um, Prince Alfred von Liechtenstein is going to speak on the seven levels of consciousness that he has discovered through lucid dreaming. Uh, we have Her Holiness Satya Sai Ma, the first female Yagda guru in 5,000 years. Uh, she will be speaking and a cast of amazing characters that you need to tune in. Uh, it's free. It's a free virtual summit, the 21st and 22nd of November. Awesome. And where do people go to find that, Dr. Hart? Um, there's a, a website, which uh, I will give you, and you can then uh, post it. Okay, great. And, you know, as we – God, there's so many interesting things to talk about here. It's It's good – it's good for people to, especially in an audience like what this podcast is building is, you know, very businessy, very entrepreneurial. Uh, it's good for people to take a step back and look at the bigger picture, right? What is going on with humanity? We get so entrapped in, um, you know, the things that keep us engaged on a day-to-day -day basis from, you know, work to our, you know, inner circle relationships to tasks and things that need to get done that we very not nearly enough do we take the time to kind of look at things globally and you know what that means for humanity and the changes that are happening so having conversations like this uh are really valuable for people so i i, I do appreciate you kind of appreciate you coming on dr hart it's always really interesting i always learn a lot 
And I guess uh, the final thing is this, you know, just give the audience their, the goods. Where, where do they find you? Um, obviously, biocybernaut.com will have all of those links. But yeah, where, where are you sending people nowadays? Well, as you said, biocybernaut.com. Uh, you can go there if you just want to be a student. Uh, there's a publication section where you can read uh, many of the scientific papers uh, that I published. Uh, and some of them were actually for lay audiences in things like Yoga Journal. Uh, you can also uh, find uh, testimonials, uh, some of them written, some of them video testimonials of people who have done the training and are raving about their wonderful experiences and their new brain. Uh, and you can also sign up. There's ways you can sign up to receive newsletters. Uh, there's also an alumni group. Uh, and you can register for trainings. There's, awesome. uh, there's plans where uh, you, there's uh, time payment plans. Uh, there's ways that uh, people can use insurance uh, to do the training. And uh, by contacting uh, either you or Kate, uh, they can find out uh, the details of how to participate. Right on. Dr. Hart, I know your, your time is really valuable, so I appreciate coming on and... Uh, talking to the audience today and explaining everything that's going on in, in this very fast moving and progressive industry that you're in, whatever you may call it, I guess the industry of consciousness is what we can call it, but you're doing a lot of good work for uh, a lot of good people and uh, it is appreciated. So thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for the invitation, Eric. Always wonderful to talk with you. Yeah, likewise. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. James Hart. Hey everybody, this is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show, and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast, and you can expect a lot more from us.